This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear From the 15th District by Mavis Gallant, which was published in The New Yorker in October of 1978. Every year on the Sunday falling nearest the anniversary of his death, Major Travella attends Holy Communion service at St. Michael's, the church from which he was buried. He stands at the back, close to the doors, waiting until all the communicants have returned to their places before he approaches the altar rail. His intention is to avoid a mixed queue of dead and living, the thought of which is disgusting to him. The story was chosen by Karen Russell, who's the author of two story collections and the novel Swamplandia. She's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2005. Hi, Karen. Hi, Deborah. So, Mavis Gallant published more than 100 stories in The New Yorker, and I know you, you went through and reread quite a few of them. What made you choose this one to read today? You know, this story has been really special to me. Uh, I've sort of passed it on to friends and students, and I love her work. And I was going to say this feels a, a, a little bit of an outlier. It sort of treats supernaturally a very uh, human predicament. But maybe it's not. As you mentioned, she's probably, you know, one of the most prolific story writers of all time. So, you know, I don't doubt that there might be something in the catalog I missed. You know, maybe she has a trilogy about <laughs> ghosts or rabbits on the moon or something. So I can't I can't claim to be a completionist at all. But I, what I love about this story is some of the her special skill for density and lightness when it comes to portraiture of her characters, you know, where she seems more to know them and remember them than to invent them. You know, it's sort of that, like, the acuity of her memory that I really respond to when I'm reading her, you know. And so to see that applied to a story, a, a really kind of fun inversion of a traditional ghost story, mm-hmm. um, it was such a pleasure, I think, just that mix of sort of her really precise, specific details riding right up against the mystery, something really mysterious about our natures. What do you mean by density and lightness? Is it? Do you think of this as a light story? I think this is an unbelievably funny story. And part of what makes it funny is Mavis' tone is detached. There's a kind of estrangement from some of these characters. She takes seriously also kind of the, the tragedies that befall them and their suffering. Um, but at this distance, you know, and sort of with the remove of the afterlife. Oh, she comes at it with it through sort of bureaucratic language. Right. There's this right this uh, amazing tonal control where we're sort of, we, we imagine somebody is a stenographer for these ghosts, you know, just kind of taking down their complaints. That's already uh, hilarious, you know. But then also I think it there's a way where because of that detachment, you can see certain truths that might be occluded from your sight in a more traditional story. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned to me before that this was one of the first Mavis Gallant stories that you'd read. Do you remember how you came across it? You know, I think like many people, the first story of hers I read was The Ice Wagon. And because mm-hmm. I think that's often really anthologized. And if you're a student of literature, there's that ending that just feels like a magic trick. But my friend had this collection just on his bookshelf. So it was sort of a, you know, random browser's luck. I was a little intimidated, you know, by stories about Paris. I had, I don't know what it was, like growing <laughs> up in Florida, like cultivated some reverse snobbery about Paris or something. <laughs> I just felt like I'd had a bad experience at Upcott. I don't know. This story was just such a delight and every line was surprising to me. And the idea, you know, I think you always have some internal auditor rating the plausibility of a dream, you know, whether you're reading about 
Quebec or real Paris or this sort of spectral 15th district. And um, every line just confirmed for me that, that she was writing absolute truth. You know, to write about sort of an impossible situation with that absolute conviction, uh, she a, was a great teacher for me, too. Well, we'll talk some more after the reading. And now here's Karen Russell reading from the 15th District by Mavis Galland. From the 15th District. Although an epidemic of haunting, widely reported, spread through the 15th District of our city last summer, only three acceptable complaints were lodged with the police. Major Emery Travella, 31st Infantry, 1914-18, Order of the Leopard, Military Beach Leaf, Cross of St. Lambert First Class, killed while defusing a bomb in a civilian area on the 9th of June, 1941, Medal of Danzig, posthumous, claims he is haunted by the entire congregation of St. Michael and All Angels on Bartholomew Street. Every year on the Sunday falling nearest the anniversary of his death, Major Travella attends Holy Communion service at St. Michael's, the church from which he was buried. He stands at the back, close to the doors, waiting until all the communicants have returned to their places before he approaches the altar rail. His intention is to avoid a mixed queue of dead and living, the thought of which is disgusting to him. The congregation sits, hushed and expectant, straining to hear the major's footsteps. He drags one foot a little. After receiving the host, the major leaves at once without waiting for the blessing. For the past several years, the major has noticed that the congregation doubles in size as the 9th of June approaches. Some of these strangers bring cameras and tape recorders with them. Others burn incense under the pews and wave ambulance and trinkets in what they imagine to be his direction, muttering pagan gibberish all the while. References he is sure must be meant for him are worked into the sermons. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. Luke 7.15 Or, so Job died, being old and full of days. Job 42.17 The major points out that he never speaks and never opens his mouth except to receive Holy Communion. He lived about 16,060 days, many of which he does not remember. On the 23rd of September, 1914, as a young private, he was crucified to a cartwheel for five hours for having failed to salute an equally young lieutenant. One ankle was left permanently impaired. The major wishes the congregation to leave him in peace. The opacity of the living, their heaviness and dullness, the moisture of their skin, and the dustiness of their hair are repellent to a man of feeling. It was always his habit to avoid civilian crowds. He lived for six years on the fourth floor in blocky Stoneflower Gardens without saying a word to his neighbors or even attempting to learn their names. An affidavit can easily be obtained from the former porter at the gardens, now residing at the Institute for Victims of Senile Trauma, 15th District. Mrs. Ibrahim, age 37, mother of 12 children, complains about being haunted by Dr. L. Chalmaton of Regius Hospital, 7th District, and by Miss Alicia Forenbach, social investigator from the Welfare Bureau, 15th District. These two haunt Mrs. Ibrahim without respite, presenting for her ratification and approval conflicting and unpleasant versions of her own death. According to Dr. Chalmerton's account, soon after Mrs. Ibrahim was discharged as incurable from Regius Hospital, he paid his patient a professional call. He arrived at a quarter past four on the first Tuesday of April 
expecting to find the social investigator with whom he had a firm appointment. Mrs. Ibrahim was discovered alone, in a windowless room, the walls of which were coated with whitish fungus a quarter of an inch thick, which rose to a height of about forty inches from the floor. Dr. Chalmerton inquired, Where is the social investigator? Mrs. Ibrahim pointed to her throat, reminding him that she could not reply. Several dark-eyed children peeped into the room and ran away. How many are yours? the doctor asked. Mrs. Ibrahim indicated six twice with her fingers. Where do they sleep? said the doctor. Mrs. Ibrahim indicated the floor. Dr. Chalmerton said, What does your husband do for a living? Mrs. Ibrahim pointed to a workbench on which the doctor saw several pieces of finely wrought jewelry. He thought it a waste that skilled work had been lavished on what seemed to be plastics and base metals. Dr. Chalmerton made the patient as comfortable as he could, explaining that he could not administer drugs for the relief of pain until the social investigator had signed a receipt for them. Mrs. Fornback arrived at five o'clock. It had taken her forty minutes to find a suitable parking space. The street appeared to be poor, but everyone living on it owned one or two cars. Dr. Chalmerton, who was angry at having been kept waiting, declared he would not be responsible for the safety of his patient in a room filled with mold. Miss Fornbach retorted that the district could not resettle a family of 14 persons who were foreign-born when there was a long list of native citizens waiting for accommodation. Mrs. Ibrahim had, in any case, relinquished her right to a domicile in the 15th district the day she lost consciousness in the road and allowed an ambulance to transport her to a hospital in the 7th. It was up to the hospital to look after her now. Dr. Chalmerton pointed out that the housing of patients is not the business of hospitals. It was well known that the foreign poor preferred to crowd together in the 15th, where they could sing and dance in the streets and attend one another's weddings. Miss Fornbach declared that Mrs. Ibrahim could easily have moved her bed into the kitchen, which was somewhat warmer and which boasted a window. When Mrs. Ibrahim died, the children would be placed in foster homes, eliminating the need for a larger apartment. Dr. Chalmerton remembers Miss Fornbach's then crying, Oh, why do all these people come here where nobody wants them? While he was trying to think of an answer, Mrs. Ibrahim died. In her testimony, Miss Fornbach recalls that she had to beg and plead with Dr. Chalmerton to visit Mrs. Ibrahim, who had been discharged from Regius Hospital without medicines or prescriptions or advice or instructions. Miss Fornbach had returned several times that April day to see if the doctor had arrived. The first thing Dr. Chalmerton said on entering the room was, There is no way of helping these people. Even the simplest rules of hygiene are too complicated for them to follow. Wherever they settle, they spread disease and vermin. They have been responsible for outbreaks of stomatitis, hereditary hypoxia, coccidioidomycosis, gonorrheal arthritis, and scleroderma. Their eating habits are filthy. They never wash their hands. The virus that attacks them breeds in dirt. We took in the patient against all rules after the ambulance drivers left her lying in the courtyard and drove off without asking for a receipt. Regius Hospital was built and endowed for ailing Greek scholars, now it is crammed with unteachable persons who cannot read or write. His cheeks and forehead were flushed, his speech incoherent and blurred. According to the social investigator, he was the epitome of the broken-down, irresponsible old rascals the 7th District employs in its public services. Wondering at the effect this ranting of his might have on the patient, Miss Vornbach glanced at Mrs. Ibrahim and noticed she had died. 
Mrs. Ibrahim's version of her death has the social investigator arriving first, bringing Mrs. Ibrahim a present of a wine-colored dressing gown made of soft, quilted silk. Miss Vornbeck explained that the gown was part of a donation of garments to the needy. Large plastic bags decorated with a moss rose, the emblem of the 15th district, and bearing the words, clean clothes for the foreign-born, had been distributed by volunteer workers in the more prosperous streets of the district. A few citizens kept the bags as souvenirs, but most had turned them into the welfare bureau filled with attractive clothing, washed, ironed, and mended, and with missing buttons replaced. Mrs. Ibrahim sat up and put on the dressing gown, and the social investigator helped her button it. Then Miss Fornbach changed the bed linen and pulled the bed away from the wall. She sat down and took Mrs. Ibrahim's hand in hers and spoke about a new, sunny flat containing five warm rooms which would soon be available. Miss Fornbach said that arrangements had been made to send the twelve Ibrahim children to the mountains for special winter classes. They would be taught history and languages and would learn to ski. The doctor arrived soon after. He stopped and spoke to Mr. Ibrahim, who was sitting at his workbench making an emerald patch box. The doctor said to him, If you give me your social security papers, I can attend to the medical insurance. It will save you a great deal of trouble. Mr. Ibrahim answered, What is social security? The doctor examined the patch box and asked Mr. Ibrahim what he earned. Mr. Ibrahim told him, and the doctor said, But that is less than the minimum wage. Mr. Ibrahim said, What is a minimum wage? The doctor turned to Miss Fornbach, saying, We really must try and help them. Mrs. Ibrahim died. Mr. Ibrahim, when he understood that nothing could be done, lay face down on the floor, weeping loudly. Then he remembered the rules of hospitality and got up and gave each of the guests a present. For Miss Fornbach, a belt made of Syriac coins, a copy of which is in the Cairo Museum, and for the doctor, a bracelet of precious metal engraved with pomegranates, about sixteen pomegranates in all, that has life-saving properties. Mrs. Ibrahim asks that her account of the afternoon be registered with the police as the true version, and that copies be sent to the doctor and the social investigator with a courteous request for peace and silence. Mrs. Carlotte Essling, née Holmquist, complains of being haunted by her husband, Professor Augustus Essling, the philosopher and historian. When they were married, the former Miss Holmquist was 17. Professor Essling, a widower, had four small children. He explained to Miss Holmquist why he wanted to marry again. He said, I must have one person, preferably female, on whom I can depend absolutely, who will never betray me even in her thoughts. A disloyal thought revealed, a betrayal even in fantasy, would be enough to destroy me. Knowing that I may rely upon some one person will leave me free to continue my work without anxiety or distraction. The work was the professor's lifelong examination of the philosopher Nicolas de Malbranche, for whom he had named his eldest child. If I cannot have the unfailing loyalty I have described, I would as soon not marry at all, the professor added. He had just begun work on Malbranche and materialism. Mrs. Essling recalls that at 17 this seemed entirely within her possibilities, and she replied something like, Yes, I see, or... I quite understand, or you needn't mention it again. Mrs. Essling brought up her husband's four children and had two more of her own, and died after 36 years of marriage at the age of 53. Her husband haunts her with proof of her goodness. He tells people that Mrs. Essling was born an angel, lived like an angel, 
and is an angel in eternity. Mrs. Essling would like relief from this charge. Angel is a loose way of speaking. She is astonished that the professor cannot be more precise. Angels are created, not born. Nowhere in any written testimony will you find a scrap of proof that angels are good. Some are merely messengers. Others have a paramilitary function. All are stupid. After her death, Mrs. Essling remained in the 15th district. She says she can go nowhere without being accosted by the professor, who, having completed the last phase of his work, Malbranche in mysticism, roams the streets, looking in shop windows, eating lunch twice, in two different restaurants, telling his life story to waiters and bus drivers. When he sees Mrs. Essling, he calls out, There you are! And, What have you been sent to tell me? And, Is there a message? In July, catching sight of her at the open-air fruit market on Dulac Street, the professor jumped off a bus, upsetting barrows of plums and apricots, waving an umbrella as he ran. Mrs. Essling had to take refuge in the cold storage room of the Central Market, where, years ago, after she had ordered 20 pounds of raspberries and currants for making jelly, she was invited by the wholesale fruit dealer, Mr. Lebrano, aged 29, to spend a holiday with him in a charming southern city whose Mediterranean Baroque churches he described with much delicacy of feeling. Mrs. Essling was too startled to reply. Mistaking her silence, Mr. Lebrano then mentioned a northern city containing a Gothic cathedral. Mrs. Essling said that such a holiday was impossible. Mr. Lebrano asked for one good reason. Mrs. Essling was at that moment four months pregnant with her second child. Three stepchildren waited for her out in the street. A fourth stepchild was at home looking after the baby. Professor Essling, working on his Malbranche and money, was at home too, expecting his lunch. Mrs. Essling realized she could not give Mr. Lebrano one good reason. She left the cold storage room without another word and did not return to it in her lifetime. Mrs. Essling would like to be relieved of the professor's gratitude. Having lived an exemplary life is one thing. To have it thrown up at one is another. She would like the police to send for Professor Essling and tell him so. She suggests that the police find some method of keeping him off the streets. The police ought to threaten him, frighten him, put the fear of the devil into him. Philosophy has made him afraid of dying. Remind him about how much he avoided writing his Malbranche mortality. He is an old man. It should be easy. That was Karen Russell, reading from the 15th District by Mavis Gallant. The story appeared in The New Yorker in October of 1978 and was included in a collection of the same title that came out in 1979. The story also appears in Mavis Gallant's Collected Stories, which was published by Everyman's Library this year. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead... Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. 
So, Karen, as you said, this is a kind of inversion of the usual ghost story. We have these dead people who are haunted by the living and, and can't shake them and want to be left alone by them. At the same time, it's not just an inversion because you have the living people who are haunted by the dead and keep, you know, they, these ghosts turns up in church and the poor professor keeps seeing his dead wife and so on. Right, right. So in a way, it's interesting that Gallant gets to have it both ways. Right, a very mutual sort of haunting. I mean, I think what you're able to see from getting this from the ghost's point of view and it's true, right? That's so funny. It's sort of counter to the way we usually imagine ghosts. You know, in the case of the major, he just wants to sort of slough off into anonymity and, you know, receive communion and be left alone. But I think what you can see from all the people pointing their cameras at him, demanding a message is she satirizes our our desire for meaning, but also she's showing us how kind of myopic it can be and self-focused, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when the husband's chasing his wife down the street, he wants the message for him, you know, he's... Yeah. he's, he's So that's sort of, you know, very human bias to want meaning, but to want it to be personal. Let's think about the major for a minute. So he doesn't want to be bothered by all of these kind of heavy, opaque, moist people. (laughs) You know, even when he was alive, he was antisocial and no one, he didn't talk to anyone. Right. But why does he keep going back to the church? Why does he have to go take communion every year? If he would let go of that, then the people Mm -hmm. would leave him alone. I think that's a great question. We're all familiar with the repetitive nature of a haunting, too. Mm-hmm. And I like so much what you say about memories cycling through us and sort of mourning is pretty repetitive sometimes, right? And we can kind of rehearse these stories that we tell about our dead relatives or our dead loved ones to the exclusion of the fullness of their life. But it's interesting to think a ghost might be caught in that in that same mm-hmm. cycle, you know? Mm-hmm. And really, he's such a creature of habit, as you say. It's not like in the afterlife, suddenly he's achieve some kind of zen-like, you know, he's still kind of a misanthrope. He still isn't so interested <laughs> in like, learning the names of anybody. These damp people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, he's really dull, moist. Yeah, it's, it's funny. You don't think about how repellent we would be probably to, to, a <laughs> to a spirit. Well, there's also, you know, Mavis, she uses the word crucified in talking about when the, the major was strapped to a wheel for not saluting his superior. And it's an unusual word to use in that context. And I wonder if we're, if we're supposed to be thinking of him in sort of Christian terms. Is he a kind of martyr to something mm-hmm. in general about the religious subtext in this story? Because there's no way that there isn't one. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. It's pretty overt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have this one ghost who keeps going to take communion. We have Mrs. Ibrahim, who's uh, you know, it's a character with a with a very likely Muslim background, given her name, and then Mrs. Essling, whose husband devoted his life to studying a Catholic philosopher who who thought that everything in the world was a manifestation of God. Right. And now they're all here in this very un-Catholic and and un-Muslim mm-hmm. afterlife. <laughs> so, right, just sort of fighting through through bureaucracy to. <laughs> Try yeah, to yeah. There, there's there's no real God in all of this. So. No, it seems it seems uh, the story's a bit pessimistic that there's going to be a happy resolution to any of these claims. Don't you think? <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, do you um, think it's not an atheistic story, but it certainly comes to religion from a very strange angle. It does, doesn't it? And I think that's part of the comedy here too. Is there? We do seem to have this really naive faith that one way or the other, after death, we're going to get an answer. Don't mm-hmm. you find? Mm-hmm. And it's just <laughs> possibly just a sort of 
kind of confusing. There's just as much red tape, you know, and sort of subjective accounts of the truth, people vying to get their their account instantiated in, in the record book. I mean, that's part of the comedy for me anyway, that it would just in some ways be sort of just as bewildering as more so maybe than the, the actual 15th district in Paris today. Right. Well, I guess there's always the possibility that they're in hell. I mean, for the major being forced to be among other people is hell. <laughs> and... Right. He's crucified to the cart. He's this hero. We need him to be this hero. And then we need him to be this messenger from the beyond. This poor wife who's sort of done, she's done her duty and she just wants to retire from her husband's esteem. You know, mm -hmm. angels are stupid or they have a paramilitary function. You know, angels and heroes, sort of people condemned to be these very flat figures. Just the idea that there might be something violent about the way that we eulogize one another. I don't think that's often thought of as a violent act. When I read this story, that sort of transformed something for me about the way I understand, you know, obituary or eulogy and our desire to do that, even, you know, for people who are living, kind of to fix them with one stable characteristic, because that is a kind of hell, you know, you can't really, can't really move on. Yeah. I mean, there's a sense in which they, they can't get away until the living forget about them. Right. From our side of death divide, that seems maybe a positive thing. But. Yeah, I, yeah it's, and that's that sort of was funny and surprising to me too, right? Because I think I tended to take more of a, a starry-eyed view, a sentimental view of how, you know, you, you think you're, you're holding someone in memory and, and honoring them. And even I was emailing with you about this, but I was like, I hope Mavis can forgive me for wanting to have this conversation with you about her work because... <laughs> You know, I found this great Amy Tan quote when I was reading a little bit around her. It says, perhaps none of my remarks about Mavis Gallant's story bear any resemblance to her real intentions and meanings. <laughs> I just like that as a disclaimer, you know, in right. case she's, she's listening. She's up there in this in this virtual uh, right. 15th district saying, oh, my God, I can't sort of believe they're talking eyes, about like, that oh, story. Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, call up your dogs. I'm just right <laughs> Well, you have a funny quote from an interview she gave about this story. Oh, yeah, I love this. So I, I was curious, you know, she um, seemed to be sort of resistant to analysis in a way that I, I respect, you know, so wanted to keep the ineffable pleasures of her stories exactly that ineffable. But here she's talking about the origin of the 15th district. I am at an age where everybody is dying, so I've seen quite a few little widows. One thing I've noticed is that when the poor man dies— often very glad to get out of his misery. The widow will always evoke an extraordinary marriage, nothing that ever really existed. I have often thought about this poor guy running through eternity with this complete nonsense following him from the living. That was where I got the idea of the professor who keeps saying that his wife is a saint, and she's so sick of hearing it. The whole thing is meant to be funny. <laughs> You know, she also said about this story that this is one of my favorite stories, but my readers were baffled and irritated by it. <laughs> I didn't and, know and you that. sense that that frustration that people aren't finding it funny enough, <laughs> right? Know, to, to watch these people in their in the misery of their afterlives. That's wild to me because I I really do think it's one of the funniest things I've ever read, and also one of the saddest too. I was um, thinking a little bit about the sort of dark relevance that that. The Mrs. Ibrahim section has taken on, at least for me at this moment, where, you know, the Dr. Chalmerton and the social investigator, their reactions to, you know, as they keep calling them the foreign-born poor, you know, that wonderful and 
damning detail where he says he thought it was a waste that skilled work had been lavished on what seemed to be plastics and base metal. I mean, his disgust sort of pervades that entire section. Yeah. And yeah. Um, his total inability to see, you know, his patient as a human. I just think she's so good at writing about urban life and, um, you know, multiculturalism and in a way that just makes her incredibly relevant for this moment. There's this uh, resistance to identifying with one's own culpability. You know, you say, oh, that's what they do. Um, and from this distance, you can sort of say, that's what we do. That's what we, the living, do. You know, I, I think it. Um, her detachment lets you see something. I think if you were eye level, it would just be overwhelming. You know, the tragedy of what happens to Mrs. Ibrahim. It's just too desperately sad. And I also think sort of a huge surprise of the story for me when I was rereading it, I just forgot Mrs. Ibrahim's version <laughs> is this heaven, right? I mean, it's this yeah. really like amazing utopian version of what might have been sort of, you're sort of where I as a reader, I'm waiting for her and kind of excited for her to blast these guys. And instead you get, you know, her children are going to learn how to ski. There's a sunny new flat. <laughs> her husband makes the thing with 16 pomegranates, you know, <laughs> he's, yeah. has great At, manners. <laughs> in the end, the, the versions you believe are the doctors and the social workers, you know, some combination of the two. You don't believe Mrs. Ibrahim's, which is, Funny to me because it's it's the opposite with uh, Mrs. Essling. You know, we believe her because we know that she probably wasn't as virtuous as her husband is making her out to be. <laughs> but why do you think Mrs. Ibrahim wants to believe in this sort of rose-tinted version of her own death instead of – why isn't she angry? I mean, you were talking about sort of the haunting as a two-way street here, you know, that the, li the living are haunted by the dead and the dead are also haunted by the living – and I think in a traditional ghost story, if a ghost shows up, it's a something to be done, right? They're sort of like, set something right, revenge my death, find where the treasure's buried, whatever. And here it just seems, made sort of a sense to me that in order for her to have peace, exactly what she's asking for, peace and silence, she's going to create a fantasy too. And think of the most consoling fiction she can imagine, which is this world where she was treated decently and her children will be cared for. That made sense to me, too, and seemed so beautiful and sad that that's what it would take for a ghost to be at peace. And I was thinking, too, in a way, you know, it's it's so much more damning than if she accused them of doing whatever they actually did to have this sort of supernatural <laughs> goodness presented. To, you know, you sort of imagine them reading this account like, ooh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and then you have Mrs. Essling, who's not – she doesn't seem particularly worried about her children or her stepchildren. No, no. Um, she... Now that she's gone, and she, she just – and she actually wants her uh, her living husband to be more, more realistic about things. Um, and she's disgusted, right, that that a professor would be sort of so imprecise and sentimental. Exactly, especially one who's, you know, studied Catholic philosophy his whole life but avoided thinking about death. You know, she wants him to face <laughs> up to it or at least be right. scared off the streets by it. She's very interesting to me. And also that, that moment of temptation with, with Mr. Lebrano. That is so much um, her gift, right? The way that she picks these details. I mean, you have the sense, I really do, that she has comprehensive knowledge of any character that you meet. In my mind, I'm like, she knows all of Mrs. Carlette Essling's life. And what a gift that she selects this hinge moment in the cold storage locker. I mean, even that detail, <laughs> right? The cold storage room. I, I think when, right, that this, of course, she might be haunted too, you know, or that's sort of the implication. I thought that this was a moment a real possibility was offered to her, you know, not not one but mm -hmm. two different churches <laughs> she could have seen yeah. on a romantic holiday. <laughs> Visiting cathedrals, but at least with a sort of 
open-sounding Italian-named man <laughs> rather than her, right. her, <laughs> her dull, egotistical German husband, you know. And I, you, I mean, you sort of feel like you know the whole history of their sad marriage, even though this is just two printed pages. I think that when we were talking about the density and the lightness, it's not ponderous, and she really trusts the reader to get so much from the details she's selecting, right? So Mrs. Essling recalls that at 17, this seemed entirely within her possibilities, you know, and we're just sort of left to imagine the, what, what of, kind of 17-year-old she was. Right, you know? right, right. And kind of like maturing into into a terrible disillusionment as these all these alliterative books keep coming out. And she, <laughs> you were talking a little about the sort of tension between specificity and mystery. Throughout this story, there's so many quantifiables. You know, we know like how many pounds of currants she buys for the jam. And we know we know how many days the major was alive. And we also know that he's forgotten many of them. You know, she leaves the spaces open too. When I when I exit a, a story, I just you feel like something essential has been shown to you just about the mysterious way that we all behave. <laughs> there's also, you know, she opens it by saying there's this epidemic of haunting, but only only three of the complaints were, you know, acceptable. And there are three quite different complaints, and I wonder what you think ties them together. Why why all three of these things are in this story? Ah, uh, I was going to ask you that, Deborah. <laughs> I mean, what these ghosts want to get rid of? It's you know, for the major, he wants to get rid of of people's curiosity about him, mm-hmm. and Mrs. Ibrahim wants to get rid of people's guilt about her, and right. And I suppose Mrs. Essling wants to get rid of the admiration or the sort of exaggeration. I suppose, of her qualities. So they all want to shake off these kind of very human emotions that are being directed at them. Perhaps they want to be emotion-free, and perhaps for for Mavis Gallant, that was a vision of a happy afterlife. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Or liberated from people's really sort of self-serving needs, right? It's not like the doctor and the social investigator are, you know, apologizing or seeking to atone for something. They're like, we'd l- we'd love to just be liberated from our. <laughs> well, they're seeking to blame each other. So right, right, and it's... to say the other guy's worse than me. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. And the congregation with this just sort of like impossible demand that the poor major and I, I love also that he's doing the same thing in a way. Right, he's like these um, are references that I'm sure are meant for me. <laughs> worked into all the sermons. <laughs> worked I mean, into the sermons, seems, yeah. It's sort of <laughs> exactly the same problem, right, where people are interpreting. Um, and poor Mrs. Essling, I, I feel very sympathetic to her. I think that probably, <laughs> I think that, that can't be uncommon. <laughs> you know? like, here she has sacrificed all possibility of her own happiness in order to get this professor through his, you know, studies. And then she's just... She can't shake him. She can't, <laughs> she's know, finally she can't even him. shake him, right? And he's and then so, he's irresponsibly <laughs> using language in the wrong way, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. You know, this a lot of her stories are about expats and exiles, and I think ghosts are could probably be categorized as they're sort of living abroad, you know, also in the world, but they're living in and elsewhere now, and they probably don't want to be haunted by their past identities, you know, exiled from life, but not quite settled into. Right. Into this new place. Right. They have this sort of amphibious existence as well. And it made sense to me that they'd sort of be fugitives from the country that they came from in a way, you know, and just really, really be seeking to escape those identities too. I was thinking when I when I read this a little bit about your story, The Prospectors, 
um, which was in the magazine last year, which is also about some ghosts who aren't quite sure that they're ghosts who are, you know, <laughs> living yeah. in a strange afterlife, unable to leave the place where they died. So I'm wondering, is this, is this particularly attractive territory for fiction writers? I do think it's really rich. I think the short story form and, and many novels, too, take death as their subject because that really is sort of the ultimate uncanny, you know, in this it's a strange predicament in some ways to sort of you, you keep failing to imagine what <laughs> this, <laughs> this this is going to be. And um, also, no one can tell you you're wrong. No one can tell you, you imagine you're wrong. it. <laughs> that's 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 right. That's true. Although maybe people are filing complaints left and right. It's <laughs> true. They're up there in the fifteenth district. Really like <laughs> impoverished imagination of what what's coming. Um, haunting is attractive to me anyway because. You're always in dialogue with the past in some way. And in a real way, the dead do live on in your memory. And that, in some ways, is a truly creative act, as we saw from mm-hmm. this story. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they live on cranky. And some, yeah. And you might not be really in control of that, the way that these sort of these forces are kind of shaping your life or directing you. Well, thank you so much, Karen. Thanks, Deborah. That was so fun. Mavis Gallant, who died in 2014, published two novels and 14 story collections in her lifetime, including From the 15th District and Overhead in a Balloon. Her collected stories were published by Everyman's Library this year. Karen Russell's most recent books are the story collection Vampires in the Lemon Grove and a novella Sleep Donation. She was named a MacArthur Foundation Fellow in 2013. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. You can also hear readings of New Yorker fiction on NewYorker.com and on the New Yorker apps, available from the App Store or from Google Play. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Alex Barron and Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.